You're listening to audio from Park Church. More info and resources are online at parkchurch.org. Take care. Psalm 127, a song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is the word of the Lord. My name is Joel, as I mentioned at the beginning. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. Thank you all for for being here. Uh, Today I am preaching from Psalm 127. Um, I had wrapped up my sermon uh, earlier this week. I was preaching through it on Thursday afternoon. I was feeling really good until right about the middle of it. And then I said, no, this isn't, this isn't it. This isn't it. And suddenly stress came over me. I began to eat of the bread of anxiety. Um, and I was like, man, what am I supposed to say? And really the last couple days have just been kind of in these pockets of trying to patch together what I think God's heart is for us today. And so uh, in a real way, I'm embodying uh, this message that unless the Lord writes a sermon, the preacher writes in vain. So let me pray for us. Father, unless you speak, I speak in vain. Unless your spirit moves, we gather in vain. So we pray for a fruitful time in your word today. Uh, We trust that you are here to guide us. Uh, Would you open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word, and would we follow you into these good paths? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just over a year ago, I went on a road trip with a few other guys for a friend's 40th birthday, and uh, we all drove to Zion National Park. How many of you guys have been to Zion? If you are not raising your hands right now, just go right now and get in your car and begin to drive because it's gorgeous. You can't miss it. Um, We did some, um, we went down the Narrows uh, from the top down. It was awesome, like hiking up Angels Landing, all these other paths. It was, it was gorgeous. It was with a bunch of friends. But on our way, the, the friend whose birthday it was, he said, hey, send me three songs, um, and, and then we're going to put them on a playlist, and we're going to play them on shuffle, and then after the song plays, you're going to have to guess who it was in the car that chose that song, and maybe why they chose that song for this trip. And so, it was a very interesting time. We, got, we, had, some, we had some bangers on this playlist. It was, it was really good. Uh, some great songs from the 90s. Uh, but ultimately, it was a really fun process of trying to determine the person that had put the song on the playlist, but also why they put it on the playlist. Uh, this summer, we've been going through the Songs of Ascents in the Psalms. It's a collection or playlist of songs for the journey, songs for the pilgrim worshipers as they were en route three times a year to go to a religious festival, a religious feast. And I don't know if you've been enjoying these psalms or not, but they've all been building on each other in unique ways. It's felt cohesive. And so I think when it got to this song, this psalm, for some reason, it just didn't feel like it was vibing with the rest 
of the playlist. It felt a little bit out of place. We were singing about lifting our eyes to the hills. We're singing about God setting us free from snares and our captors. We're singing about God doing great things for us. And suddenly we're singing about Home Depot. We're singing about Nest security cameras and we're singing about diapers. So why this song? Why right now at this place in the playlist? A quick background on Psalm 127. Uh, this psalm was written by King Saul, and if you look up at the top, you see that little postscript there, or the prescript there, a song of ascents of Solomon, right? This song was written by King Solomon, he's uh, King, uh, King David's son. This is one of two psalms that he wrote in the Psalter. Uh, one reason we might have a harder time connecting with this psalm in particular is because we don't have much of a category for this genre of psalm, this type of psalm. What do I mean? Psalm 127 is what's known as a wisdom psalm. It's part of the wisdom literature. When we hear a psalm, we think about songs of praise. We think about songs of thanksgiving. We think about maybe psalms of lament. But this is not that. And I think there are a lot of other psalms that have different genres. And this is just a, a, a different nature that we're not used to. When we say wisdom literature, we think about Proverbs. Uh, we think about Ecclesiastes. We think about the book of Job. And wisdom literature is interesting in this, is that typically it hits at how we actually live our faith out in a real world. How we live our faith out in the everyday, the nitty-gritty nine-to-five and all the cracks and all the crevices of our lives. How do we do that? How do we live our lives well and not foolishly. And so, here we are with Psalm 127. Psalm 127, and in a sense, it's, I want to say this to us, it's so important that we look at this psalm and, it, and realize its centrality in our lives of worship. Because if our worship is disconnected from our everyday lives, was it really worship? Was it even worship? We don't come on Sundays to escape our lives, but rather to have our lives become clearer as we gather and as we sing. It's only as we worship that we come to see our work in the right way. Sometimes we've idolized our work or come to see our life differently than God sees it. And wisdom literature and wisdom psalms help us see these things in a clearer way. And so with these wisdom psalms, we refuse to become dichotomous people, a schizophrenic people who worship God on Sundays, but then we worship a ton of other gods during the week. The God who is the object of our worship on Sundays is just as present with us on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, informing the full of it and not just 90 minutes on a Sunday. Worship and wisdom must walk hand in hand. One without the other is incomplete. And that's why wisdom literature is essential for us today. As I spent time in this psalm over the last few weeks, uh, one of the main things that I've come to realize about this psalm is that this psalm is a resounding call to live a life with God, to live a life with God. Or as Richard Foster and Dallas Willard came to term it, a with God life. We want to live a with God life in all things. This with God life is lived out dependently on Him. God created us and set us in the garden to rule over the garden, but always in relationship to Him, not independent of Him. He made us in His image, which means we were His representatives. We were His statues, His ambassadors that were, were sent out to represent Him in all that we do, all that we say. But if you know anything about how the story unfolds in Genesis, what happens? You remember that this with God life has never been humanity's forte. Our first father and mother, Adam and Eve, rejected the kind rule and wisdom of God, preferring the destructive wisdom of the serpent. And from then on out, story after story after story of brokenness, of exile, of separation and distance from God. 
God inviting dependence, but us choosing independence. The story repeating itself again and again with individuals and communities of individuals throughout the Old Testament and the New. We are all created for dependence, and yet all of us seek to live independently of our maker. And in comes in Psalm 127 to speak to us today, knowing well that we've got this independent blood flowing and pulsing in our veins that we can't get away from. And Psalm 127 knows that we need wisdom to live a different way, to live in sync with God and live in sync with Him. It wants us to remember that we were created to depend on God not just three times a year, but every second of every hour of every day of every year. It's a call to return to the simplicity of life in the garden, but also to live in communion with our Creator. And so, Really, this, this psalm uh, highlights four different areas that we can cultivate this God life in. Um, I use this word cultivate intentionally. I use gardening language because I think it takes intentional cultivation of this in our lives. We need to tend to it. And so for the rest of the time, we're going to walk through Psalm 127, just beginning to end, and look at and make four observations about this psalm and what we learn about the with God life. So the first observation I'm going to make is this. Psalm 127 invites us to cultivate a with God life in how we build. And how we build. So I want to read in verse 1, the first half right now. Unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in vain. Psalm 127 is getting at building, at labor, and how we work. Every one of us is a builder. This isn't just about physical building. This is about literal building and also figurative building as well. When I say the work, all of us have a different response. Each of our understandings of work have been handed down to us from our families of origin, but also the cultures that we're in, uh, the jobs that we've had. We all work for different reasons, and we work very differently when we do work. And so if you took a poll about work uh, for the average Denverite, you'll get a handful of responses. Um, Maybe just if I say the word work to you right now, what are maybe just— Give me like a sentence, or or not a sentence. Give me a paragraph, just kidding. No, give me like a word of what what comes to mind when you think about the word work. Work. Work is? Productive, okay, job. What else? Toil. Toil. Somebody in the last service said mopping. I'm like, that's not what I was thinking about. (laughs) It is work though. I think a handful of responses about work that you get here in Denver would be something like this. Work is a means to an end. We work in order to play and buy as many toys as we can and get up to the mountains as much as we can. For others, work is a place that we seek to prove our worth, do we not? We attempt to establish our identity and our status and importance, so we go out. On Friday night, we meet somebody new. Hey, nice to meet you. My name is so-and-so. What do you do. Tell me about your work, right? Who are you? Let me size you up. What what title? What do you do? Really? What's your title? Interesting, you know? And we're sizing people up based on their salaries and all of these other things. For others, work is a necessary evil. You came in today and you're like, I hate my job. Not into it. Don't like my coworkers. Don't like my boss. All I'm doing is getting a paycheck there, and then I leave and leave all of that behind to to seek out other things. We're just trying to pay the bills in a city with ever-increasing costs. So often we think about ourselves working alone, and yet this psalm starts in a different way. Unless the who? Lord builds a house. Unless the Lord builds a house. In this sense, Psalm 127 imitates Genesis 1. In the beginning, who? 
God created the heavens and the earth. For some reason, if you're anything like me, I see God is disconnected from my everyday realities, including work. And yet, Psalm 127 says, God will not be separated from our everyday realities. In this psalm, we find God actively at work. In this case, he is building. He is a laborer. We typically see kings as removed on a throne, kind of ruling and reigning from a distance, shouting out orders, and then people carrying out their will. We think of Greek gods and goddesses reclining, being fed grapes, and never stooping to work alongside humanity, and yet not the Christian God. I went with my daughters on Friday to the Children's Museum. We spent a while in the woodworking area, uh, building and screwing things in and hammering others. And so they got these cute little hammers that you're like, it's like the the hammer has to be small enough so kids won't totally obliterate themselves when they like are going to town. And, And there I am with my daughters, like just kind of nailing like screws into these things. And I'm working alongside of them. I'm not at a distance. I'm there like hammering, like hammering these, these, uh, nails in and trying to create these projects with them. In a sense, that's a picture of God we find in this psalm. God is joining us in our work. He's joining us. He is the working God. God is the first creator. He's the first artist. He's the first gardener. He's the first architect. I think we are uh, surprised to find out that the Christian God is the God who has dirt under his nails and paint on his clothes. And I think really the psalm starts us off in a posture of dependence. This first word in the psalm, unless, unless this than that. Unless God builds, those who labor will labor in vain. It will be fruitless. Unless God is involved, this thing won't get off the ground. God is at the center of the universe, not us. And I would say that if that is true, then this must follow. If God is building alongside of us, then we never work alone, whether you believe in him or not. You never work alone. We never work alone. God is always near. Often Western Christians tend to think of sacred gatherings and then secular realities. The sacred and the secular. We work in comfortable categories. We're talking about God. This is a sacred category. So we talk in a slightly different tone. I've got like my praying voice, which is super annoying. It's like listening back to recordings, all of a sudden like my volume goes down. I have like a different tone. It's like, well, this is sacred, right? And then all of a sudden, we transition to other things like football or recreation, whitewater rafting, or workplace. And then we're suddenly talking about secular. Oh, yeah, this is that, right? And yet, the Bible doesn't give us this out. I I noticed this very predominantly in my first, like, post-college job. Um, I was working in sales in the music music industry in California. I really wanted to be a positive witness at work. And so I would take time before my work would start. I would go, I'd drive out to a lake right by my house. I would spend time in the car, like reading the Bible, good sacred activity, right? I would get out of the car. I would go for a walk and kind of just pray about my day. I would jump back in my car and then drive probably about uh, five to seven minutes away. And I would drive down this road and I would be praying like, Lord, use me today. I want to be salt and light. I want to work well, do all of these things. But it's interesting. As soon as I got to my workplace, I noticed a tendency in me. And I don't know if you have the same tendency. You might. I would turn off my car, but in a sense, figuratively, I would also turn off my spirituality. I'd be like, okay, that was my sacred time. Now is like my time to get, get to work, and I'm leaving God in my car almost. And that's just not the God of the Bible. I want to say this to all of us today. If Jesus is Lord, he is and must be Lord over everything, 
over everything. Over that time in the morning, for sure. When I would walk around that lake, for sure. When I was driving to work, for sure. But also when I would walk in, God was with me, working alongside of me with his little hammer. He was with me. And he wants to remind us of that. When we go home, God is with us at all times. There is no sacred, secular divide. All of life is sacred because all of it is lived before the face and presence of God. We never work alone. We just forget that he's there. Just before uh, we move on, I, I want to I get a little bit more practical here. Um, uh, I, I get into automatic mode as well. And so I, I think sometimes if, if the same is true of you, you might need to plan for a disruption in your work in order to remind you of these realities. It might be setting off a timer a couple times a day. So maybe have Siri remind you at 10 a.m. and at 2 p.m. Just say, hey, remind me to talk to God for a moment, you know? And so um, I, I, there's a practice that John Eldridge created called a one-minute pause. So if you got one minute in your day, this is a helpful little practice in the middle of your workday to just set a timer and then just pause. So whatever you're doing, just stop in that moment, just hit pause, and then just, just remind yourself that you are there with God. I think John Eldridge, he says, everyone and everything I give to you. So stop in the middle of your day, giving up your worries, your concerns, the things that you're, you're laboring over and say, everyone... Everything and everyone I give to you, Lord, remind me that you're here working with me. And then invite God back into the work with you, that he is with you in those times. I want to just say this to each of us. There are no God-forsaken places in our days. There are no God-forsaken places. There is no step that you can take into any time of your week that is unholy ground. Every step that we take is a moment to say, take off your shoes. This is holy ground, for God is always with us. We must learn to cultivate a with God life and how we build and how we create. Point number two, Psalm 127 invites us to cultivate with, uh, with God life in how not just we build, but also how we protect. Second half of verse one says this, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. So he repeats that word vain. So there's, there's vain laboring in the, in the first portion, first half. There's vain um, watching in the second. So not only do we build houses and businesses, we also build cities literally and figuratively. How is it that we watch over these things and protect, protect them once we've created them? Derek Kidner, a commentator, said that this psalm addresses how we create and how we conserve. How do we create things? And then also, how do we conserve that which we've created? Isn't that all of life? It's, it's a matter of creating and conserving, creating and conserving, cultivating this life. Life is a series of stories of these things together. We produce something, and then we seek to protect it and cultivate it. And yet, just as there are healthy ways to create and watch over things, there are also unhealthy ways of creating and protecting the psalm gives us a picture of a, of a night, uh, of, of, an, of a watchman on a wall. A uh, watchman's job was to stay up all night till the dawn arrived, right? Making sure that no dangers would come into the city or attack it throughout the night. And yet before the watchman can watch, in Psalm 127, we are told that these watchmen are not alone. There is another watchman, a way more powerful watchman with far bigger eyes who can see through the dangers of the night and see everything. And yet this watchman has the power to do something about it. This is the watchman whom we watch with, whom we can serve with, whom we protect with. We can trust in him. 
quick observation. Just because God builds alongside of us and watches alongside of us doesn't mean that that excludes us from the need to build. It doesn't mean that excludes us from the need to watch anymore or protect. We build alongside of him and watch alongside of him, implementing the best practices we can, but also recognize this, that the best practice for us at all times is to trust in God. We build and we protect, not alone, but with him. It's done in dependence with him. We don't have to control. We don't have to manipulate. We don't have to live our lives so anxiously as if he weren't near because he is. We must learn to cultivate a with God life and how we protect. And I think this point leads to the next point beautifully. Psalm 127 invites us to cultivate a with God life in how we rest. How we rest. So not only do we work and labor and watch and protect, but also God calls us to rest. Read verse 2 with me. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. He gives to his beloved sleep. I want to say this. If God is not in the picture, it would make sense that you would build up and, pro- and protect in particular ways. It makes sense to me that you would eat from the, from the bread of anxious toil. You have to look out for yourself. No one else is. If I don't look out for myself, no one else will look out for me. Of course this person is rising early and going, to, going late to rest. No one else is going to get the work done for them. But notice that they're not able to actually rest. There's a restlessness about them. There's an unease about this person. There's a workaholism about this person, an inability to slow down. There seems to be a general spirit of heaviness and weight to them, unable to let your guard down. The description of this tells us that they're eating from the harvest of their life which was, that was produced, and this was the bread of anxious toil. They have something to show for their work, but it was produced not through peaceful work, but anxious toil. And they're living from that place of anxiety. Contrast this with the last phrase of verse 2. For he gives to his beloved what? Sleep. Sleep. Some of you guys are way more pumped on that than others. My wife loves sleep. I do too, actually, for the record. I'm a morning person, so I really like waking up too. But, uh, but there's, there's a sense that God loves to give us sleep. What a phrase and what a contrast. Notice a couple parts of this. For he gives. We are trying to work long hours to take, to earn, and yet God comes to us in our taking and our earning, and God gives. Our generous God comes toward us to give, even when we haven't earned. We're like, I need to earn it. And God's like, I'm going to give you sleep right now, sleep that you haven't earned, but just because I love to give it to you. Who's he giving this to? His beloved, his loved ones. The only way that we can truly rest is knowing that we're not employees, but we are beloved, loved children. We are sons and daughters of a good father, like we sang earlier. Our good father doesn't hand us a list of more tasks, but rather hands us sleep in our places of anxious working. He hands us rest. He hands us margin. He hands us relaxation. He offers us perspective. If you're living this with God life dependent on him, the good news is you actually can afford to stop, to rest, to relax, and actually take some deep breaths because the universe doesn't always rest on your weak shoulder but rather on God's strong shoulders. So together, let's just take a deep breath. God is with us, and he sustains the universe so you can let your guard down. 
I love the idea of Sabbath that we find in the Old Testament. It's a day that embodies this reality perfectly. Jews and many Christians take a day out of seven other days to, to stop, or six other days, sorry about that. How many days do you have, Joel? Just kidding. I've got seven. Uh, not merely just to hit pause, but actually hit the reset button a day a week to stop worrying, to stop working, a day to pray, a day to play. This rhythm of a day of rest is not a day to escape and just jump into distraction and entertainment, rather a day that rejuvenates and launches us back into six days of working with fresh vision, with God's heart, knowing that we are God's beloved. We work from a place of knowing that we're loved, not trying in order to prove anything to anybody else. And that's like healthy working. So healthy creating and healthy like oversight of things is actually done perfectly or at least more rightfully from a place where we know we're God's beloved. We know we're his. Walter Brueggemann said this, people who keep Sabbath live all seven days differently. People who keep Sabbath live all seven days differently, not just one day. This is the day where our Father gives sleep and rest to his beloved, and it's only as we can rest in our Father's love that we can actually see our work with the right set of eyes. Children, you are loved. You are loved. You can sleep because the one who loves you and holds you never sleeps, as Psalm 121 told us. We can engage in work again knowing that we're not working alone, but that God is with us. Fourth point. Psalm 127 invites us to cultivate a with God life in how we family, how we create a household. The last three verses, let's read through those. Three through five. Behold, children are heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is a man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This word for behold is an interesting word. It can either mark a new stanza in poetry, which again, I think it is. It's a new stanza. But also, it can mean see, look, perceive, look at this again and again. Hello, pay attention to me. This is a reality that you often can forget, and it speaks incredibly positively about children, the presence of children in a household. These three verses are really just an outworking of the first two verses. It fits under the umbrella of creating and conserving. How are we creating and conserving and how we build our households and interact with children and raise children? How we do this can teach us, ultimately, that all things are under God's control, including our households. We must learn to trust in God to grow our families in the ways that He sees best fit. Now, I want to recognize that in this setting, there are a ton of different kinds of people in here. There are singles in here who don't want to be married, others who do, some who have longed for kids but haven't been able to. There are couples who are dating, couples who are married and haven't been able to have kids, or those who've lost kids along the way. I want to be clear here that you don't need to have biological children in order to live the blessed life. Did Jesus live the blessed life? Absolutely. He lived perfectly in step with the Father. How many biological children did Jesus have? None, right? What about Paul? The blessed life is a life lived with God, dependent on him, trusting him for outcomes. It's a life lived in the families that God's given us, not that we wish somehow he had given us. This is the blessed life. In the same way that God gives sleep to his beloved, so God is also giving children as gifts. Solomon uses three different words to describe these gifts. He describes them as a heritage, 
as a reward and then also as arrows. Uh, the word for heritage implies inheritance. The word has been, had been used as a reference to Israel's inheritance of the promised land. But the twist of him using it right here is when you say, man, I'm waiting for my inheritance. What are you, what are you waiting to do? You're waiting for your parents to die, right? Because that's how you get your inheritance. And yet God comes in and he says, hey, parents, I'm giving you an inheritance in your kids. Okay, wait, what? He's saying that these kids are a heritage. These kids are a gift that I'm giving to you. Not only are they a heritage, they're also a reward. Now, again, we think in terms of reward, you do A and B, and then I will do C for you. That is a reward. You've earned it. You've earned your kids. You've proved that you can be an awesome parent. And clearly that's not true either. This word for reward is just speaking of value. These children are of value. They're, they're um, a heritage. They are valuable. I think often... I can treat my kids like they're a nuisance. They're getting in the way of my lifestyle or the things that I'm trying to accomplish. The times that I'm most bothered are when they interrupt me when I'm in the middle of doing something. I'm like, ugh, what? Heritage. Reward. Blessing. Positive. And so I think Solomon comes to us and he says, behold, parents, don't forget your kids are a heritage. They are a reward. Behold, again and again and again, these children are inheritance that God is actually using to refine you and shape you into his image. But not just that, God is using you to refine them, which is the final little metaphor here, the simile here. They are like arrows. They're like arrows. Now, I know that some of you say, yeah, these arrows are shooting at me. No, you've got a quiver, right? And this this is ultimately your offense or defense in life. And God is calling you to refine these little ones' lives so that as they grow older and older, they're discipled and looking more and more like God. That ultimately we see a picture, it kind of like fast forwards a few years, and it says, he shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. It's like, wait, what's happening with the gate? The gate was a place of justice. These enemies are probably accusing somebody falsely. And just ultimately, the psalmist is saying, hey, you're not alone when somebody's accusing you. Your family is working together as a household. You are a missional unit together, walking into these things. Your kids aren't like rejecting you. They are walking hand in hand with you, defending you, believing in you. And you are together working towards the purposes of God. It's a beautiful picture. Just because children are heritage and a reward doesn't mean things will be easy. One commentator says, the greater their promise, the more likely that these children will be a handful before they are a quiverful. I like that. Preach. But also remember this, children aren't born as arrows, but rather they're carefully cultivated into that. It implies long-term investment and care and discipline, and not just on the part of the parents. When we do child dedication, what do we remember? That all of us are cultivating these arrows together. What's happening right now downstairs and upstairs in Park Kids? We are cultivating and crafting and sharpening these arrows for God's purposes. That's not just like free babysitting. That's what we're doing. Heritage, reward, arrows. Park kids, park students, park college, all of these things are seeking to shape the image of God in people and in turn being used by him in seeing God's kingdom come. Some of you might say, I have no family. I'm all alone. 
good news. As we read the scripture, we find out that there is not just biological families, but there's a deeper, even more powerful spiritual family. God not only creates biological families, but also spiritual ones. John 1, 12 through 13 says this, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become what? Children of God who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. This is provided to all of us as we come into the family of God through Jesus. God is our Father, who in turn gives us spiritual fathers and mothers, spiritual brothers and sisters. He calls us to raise up spiritual babies that we're giving ourselves to throughout the rest of our lives. We exist as a church to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. We give ourselves away. We give our lives away. And that's what it's all about. This is the blessed life that Psalm 127 imagines. In closing, this psalm is less about building buildings and making babies. It's about a life lived with God, independence on him. In a very real sense, Psalm 127 seems to be the John 15 of the Psalter. He says this in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. It's not in vain. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in vain. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Apart from me, you can do nothing. It is vain that you rise up early and go, to be, uh, go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Apart from me, you can do nothing, for he gives to his beloved sleep. So as we gather with the church on Sundays, we abide, we depend. This is holy ground, friends. As we leave, as we go back to our neighborhoods and our homes, we abide, we depend. That is holy ground. In our workplaces or the places of our unemployment, we abide and we depend. This is holy ground. In our amazing jobs and in our tough jobs, we abide, we depend. That is holy ground. In our families, in our households, with or without children, with or without spouses, we abide, we depend. That is holy ground. All of life from beginning to end is meant to be a story of God faithfully inviting us to walk with him in all things at all times. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your presence here. Thank you that you want to see us flourish uh, in a life with you and alongside of you. And we confess that we're not very good at this dependent life. I'm awful at it. And yet, Spirit, I want you to awaken in me just skills to learn to trust in you more and walk with you more and be nearer to you. So would you do that in me? Would you do that in us together? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Heart Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media at Heart Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at partchurch.org. Peace and love.